I, uh, I titled this uh, series of messages um, uh, this week and the next two weeks, The Best Chapter. And that's kind of an ambitious thing to do, and it may be a heretical thing to do, to, to pick a part of the Bible and say, that's the best part. Um, and, and the reason I did it is because I believe it. This, this may very well be the best part of the Bible. And I know all of the problems, you know, just last week I talked about the dangers of, of, of taking parts of the Bible that you don't like and ignoring them. So, so I, I'm aware that there are dangers that, that come with, with picking and choosing in the Bible. But, um, but I had two options because there's another thing you can do. Um, I had a friend in, in Oregon who, when I was just a baby Christian, uh, his name was Michael Lamb, and I was talking to him, and he, he said, he said that this was his favorite chapter in the Bible too, but he, he knew all of the dangers. You know, I was just a baby Christian, right? But he knew all the dangers that come from picking and choosing and saying, I like this and I don't like that. So what he said is, this is the part of the Bible, uh, of my Bible, that it naturally falls open to. So he said, when I just flip through my Bible, this is the page it opens up to. And the reason is because he spends so much time there. The spine is cracked, and, and that's just the place that he spends a lot of time. So he never came out and said, this is my favorite part. He just said, what do you know? It always seems to open here. So, um, so I'm going to go ahead and skip that little bit of sophistry and say, this is, this is one of the best parts of the Bible, if not the best. Um, but it does raise the question, are you allowed to do that? Are you allowed to have favorites? Um, or even better yet, what is the criteria you use? How do you, how do you decide what's the best part of the Bible? What is, what is, um, a good versus less good? Are, are you allowed to ask that question? Are you just supposed to say, look, it's all God's word and we're all supposed to like it equally? Good doesn't come into it. Well, the early church was very clear. Good does come into it. In fact, they adopted a word from their culture, uh, which is gospel. They adopted this word um, in, in, in the uh, biblical language. It's euangelion. It's where we get the word evangelism. And it means good news. In, in English, we get the word gospel. From Old English, there was a word, uh, gottspel, which is like a good spiel. Okay, a good story. Uh, something that is, that is news to you. And by the way, it's good news. So the, the early church was very clear that the message about Jesus is not just news. It, now, it may be a whole separate question, is it news, right? Do we treat it like it's news or do we treat it like it's yesterday's news? So that's a whole separate conversation. But what the early church was very clear on, this is good news. And so I think we are allowed to, to ask, is this good or bad? Is this good or less good? And I think that one of the best examples of good news is here in Romans 8. In Romans 8, we see the clearest exposition of Paul's thinking about Jesus. Uh, in, in the Gospels, we get to see Jesus at work, but there's not a lot of reflection. What is Jesus up to? Why did he do that? In the letters, Paul's letters especially, we see that kind of, that kind of thinking. And as, as, as you know, because we just got done with a series um, talking about Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, most of Paul's letters were to churches that he had an re- existing relationship with, right? He had planted the church, and they had some kind of a controversy come up. Paul said, what should we do? These women just, they won't be quiet in church. What should we do, Paul? And so Paul would write back a letter and tell them women should be quiet or they should wear a veil or whatever it was Paul was going to say. Paul was answering specific questions that had come up. But he wasn't saying, let me tell you what I think about Jesus. 
In the case of the Roman church, he did not have that relationship. Nobody sent him a letter saying, hey, Paul, tell us what to do about women being talkative or uh, uh, prophets who won't shut up or people speaking in tongues. Nobody asked him a question about anything. Paul is just saying, here, let me tell you what I think. So this is a very clear expression of what Paul thinks about Jesus. And uh, it is, it is uh, for that reason, worth study. If you want to understand what did people in the early church think about Jesus, this is a great place to look for it. There's a problem, though, which is it's incredibly dense. It's, it's, it's a whole lot crammed into a very few pages. And so it, it can be very difficult to get through. Um, I, there have been any number. I couldn't, I couldn't even estimate how many, how many commentaries have been written on the, the letter to the Romans. But the longest one I'm familiar with was written in the last century by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And it's 14 volumes. Okay, it's 14 volumes long. Just just chapter 8, okay, the chapter we're going to be looking at has two volumes plus a little bit of a third volume just to discuss what all's going on, what all's at work in chapter 8. And we're not going to do that. One of the one of the good things about it being so dense is it 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 takes some study, but it also means you can kind of cherry pick. You can say to yourself, you know what? Uh, there's there's a, a treasure house here, and I can just go grab the pieces that are helpful to me today, and I can come back later because my Bible falls open to this page naturally. So you say, look, I don't have to understand it all. I don't have to get everything out of it. I don't have to be greedy because there's so much. Every time I come back to Romans 8, I get something that is wonderful. So that's what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks. We're just going to go cherry-pick some of the great things in Romans 8, and hopefully when I'm done you'll agree with me that this is the best chapter. So what does it say? Paul begins in verse 1. He says, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that sounds kind of dry. So let me, let me tell it to you a different way. Okay. The jury comes in. Okay. It's Saturday afternoon. The cable channels all break their coverage from whatever they were doing. And they say, uh, we're standing by. We understand the jury is coming back in. And uh, we'll, we'll let you know what, what's going to happen in this big trial. Um, and so, so now it's the courtroom. And the, the jury assembles into the jury box. And um, the judge says, do you have a verdict? And they say, yes, we do. And they say, is it written down? And they say, yes, it is. Well, let me see it. So the bailiff carries the, the verdict over to the judge. The judge reads it. And he says, not guilty. Okay. That's the way we have to appreciate this. Paul spent eight chapters getting us to this point where we can appreciate what he says. The verdict is not guilty. You are off the hook. Okay. Whatever it is you did. If, if you've ever said to yourself, I wonder if God doesn't like this about me. If you ever said, I don't, I don't know if God is happy with the way I did whatever. The answer is right here. Not guilty. Not guilty. Whatever it is, whatever it is, when you fill in the little blank in your head and you say, that thing I did, the thing, oh, when I was 13 or when I was 37, the thing I'm not proud of, the thing I try to keep people from knowing about, whatever it is, whatever it is, the answer is not guilty. So does that mean God doesn't care about it? Does God just, ah, it's no big deal. 
Does God just wink at it and say, oh, you kids, you know, that's all right? No. He says, he says in verse 2, he says, for the law of the Spirit, I'm wearing the wrong glasses. You're all clear, and my Bible is not. So he says, he says, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. He says, you have been set free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death, you have to go back to chapter 7 and read it. It's, we, we heard it earlier. It was up on the screen. He said, he said, there's something at work in me. I can appreciate what God says, you know, don't murder. Good idea, right? Boy, I'd like to kill her. Okay, boy, that guy who cut me off, if I had a machine gun mounted in my car, right? Right? There's something in me. I can appreciate the law, but at the same time, there's a part of me that is okay with violating it. Okay? Paul has talked about that. And Paul says here in chapter 8 that God has set us free from that. That thing, that thing that is at work inside of us, that lets us simultaneously look at the law and say, that's a good idea, but just not for me. He says, we can be set free from that. He says, he says, the reason that it's okay for you to be set free, or the reason it's okay for you to get off is because God looks at your problem and says, here's the problem. The problem is not what you want to do, it's what you do. And I'm going to work on that. He says, he says, I am going to set you free. Now, for us, I, I don't know what, conj- what would you conjure up in your mind when you hear about being set free, but Paul was a Jew. And every year he would rehearse over and over all during the course of the, the religious observance of his people. He would have rehearsed the story of the Exodus. Okay. I don't know how many of you have seen like the Ten Commandments or maybe Prince of Egypt. Um, you know the story about Moses set my people free or let my people go. Um, Moses goes to Pharaoh and uh, way down in Egypt land, let my people go, right? God says to Moses, I have heard the cry of my people who are in Israel on account of their taskmasters. And so I'm sending you to deliver them. Paul says that's what's going on with us. That we are slaves to sin. And it doesn't do any good to punish us for the things we do wrong as long as we're in slavery. So God cuts to the core of the problem. God says, here is your real problem. Your problem is that sin thing that's controlling you. And it doesn't matter whether you think the sin is the devil, right? The devil is treating you like a puppet or if it's more like a magnet, or it's just somehow you're just kind of bent that way. However you, you see it, there's something that makes you do the thing that you wish you wouldn't do. God says, that's the real problem. That's the part I'm going to work on. So Paul says, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to deal with sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin. God condemned sin. Instead of condemning you, which wouldn't have done any good, God condemned Pharaoh. God condemned the thing that has been making you do the thing you wish you couldn't. So, does that mean you're never going to sin again? Does that mean you're never ever going to make a mistake? You're never going to do anything wrong? Well, try and make it to the parking lot. Okay. My guess is, is you'll find the answer is no, of course you're going to sin again. But hold that thought. What does that mean? I want to just quickly deal with four, the next couple of verses because there's this thing. Uh, our, our culture is obsessed with sex. Uh, maybe you've noticed, or maybe that's news to you. I don't know. 
Um, but when we see the word flesh, it sounds like an adult bookstore or an exotic dance facility or something. And so we think Paul's talking about sex here. Okay. What Paul is talking about when he says flesh is he's saying, he's saying everything that is anti-spiritual. He's talking about the, the thing that if you think of the story of Adam and Eve, right? God says, do it my way. And they said, no, that's the flesh. Okay. The flesh is the thing that says, I don't want to do it God's way. Okay. And it doesn't matter whether it's actual flesh or whether it's just, you know, no, you are not the boss of me. For Paul, the word flesh means the thing that is opposed to the spirit. So he goes on, uh, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh and so forth. If you are determined to do it your way, then you're going to think about ways to do it your way. If you're determined to do it God's way, you're going to think about it God's way. So he goes on and says, the mind that is set in the flesh, the mind that is opposed to the spiritual things, is hostile to God. That just makes sense. He says it does not submit to God's law. It cannot, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So in Paul's thinking, the flesh just means that thing that's opposed to God. So the next couple of verses, and and again, if that's not clear to you, that's okay. I can recommend a 14-volume commentary that will that will clarify it for you. But again, our goal, our strategy with Romans 8 is just to go cherry-pick the good parts, right? So just over the course of the next decade, whenever your Bible flops open to that, you can think about what 5 through 8 mean. Because I want to move on to, to 9. We've got a question on the table, which is, am I never going to sin again? I've been set free, but am I never going to sin again? And he says in verse 9, You are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, this is the key. Paul is a Jew. He's talking about the Exodus. He sees the world through the lens of the Exodus. He sees the gospel through the lens of the Exodus. He says, you've been set free from Pharaoh. What happened to the Jews when they were set free from Pharaoh? Well, they went out into the desert. For 40 years, they went camping. Okay, For 40 years, they went camping in the desert. It's a three-week trip. They got to spend 40 years there because they didn't quit sinning. They didn't quit acting like slaves. In fact, they routinely would tell Moses, oh, it was so much better back on the plantation. It was so much better back when Pharaoh was just killing us. Okay, Because I just don't know if I can deal with this. So Paul is saying, the Spirit of God dwells in you. He's saying, the Spirit of God is that is that column of fire at night and, and pillar of cloud by day. The thing that reminds you that God is in your midst. Are you going to immediately start acting the way God wants you to act? No. Uh, is it going to take 40 years? Very likely. I mean, because they weren't, they weren't all cured when they got to the Holy Land, right? But God will be with you. He says the Spirit of God dwells in you, and that has a consequence. He says, he says in verse 10, he says, if Christ is in you, and he's just said Christ is, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So, yes, the body still does things, okay? It's still, you know, you still hit and everything else you might do with the body, everything else you might do that's wrong. Um, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life. God is still there. And then in verse 11, he says, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, if that pillar of fire and, and, and smoke is there, if you are out in the wilderness, you're still making mistakes, but God is still with you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies 
through his spirit that dwells in you. Now, he could be talking about eternal life here. He could be saying, you may never, you may never in this life get it all worked out. You may never quit sinning. But you'll still have eternal life because God is with you. God dwells in you. And that's not going to stop when you die. But Paul is also saying that there's more to it than that. He says that the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also. He says, both in this life and the next life, God at work in your midst, among you and in you, will change you. So he says, so summing it up, he says, you've been set free. You've been set free from sin. You're no longer under Pharaoh's authority. And then he says, and you're going to go out into the wilderness and you're going to, you're going to say, you know, this is harder than I thought. Um, maybe it wasn't so bad in the plantation after all. And he says, God's okay with that. God knows that's going to happen. And God commits to be in relationship with you no matter what you do and no matter how long it takes. You're still free. You're still free and God's still with you. So, the question for us, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Because it's up to you. You see, you're free. You're free. There's no conditions. There's no conditions whatsoever. If you want to run for the hills, like an escaped slave, you can. But what what God is warning you is that eventually you'll make your way back to the plantation. Eventually you will make your way back to slavery. So if you stick with God... He'll work on the sin part. He'll take care of the rest. But he says, it's up to you. You are free whether or not you choose to remain in relationship with God. You've been set free because God loves you. What you do with it is up to you. We have a, we have a, um, um, the, the, the example that, the example that Paul uses talking about the, the wilderness experience, camping. Uh, we don't camp a lot. And really, since that time, it's been a long time since anybody camped for 40 years straight. So mostly people have taken that example. What does it mean for God to dwell in you? And they've used a slightly different image. They've, they've said, okay, my house isn't moving around every couple of days, but God is still dwelling in it. And so St. Saint, Saint Augustine used that image 400 years ago. He turned the, the camping into a house and... Um, uh, in the last century, uh, George MacDonald um, came up with a with an illustration that C.S. Lewis adapts here in this book. This is if you haven't read this book, um, I can't recommend it enough. It's an awesome book. C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, but he says this. He says, "I find I must borrow yet another parable from George MacDonald. Imagine yourself a living house, and God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what He is doing." He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought 
you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Romans 8 starts there. It starts with the fact that we've been freed and that God commits to live in us and to do the work we need to so we will never act like slaves. If it takes one day or if it takes 40 years, if it takes the rest of our life, God commits to make us into a palace that he can come and live in. So what do we do with it? Whatever we want, we're free. We can run. Or we can remain in relationship with God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have freed us from sin and that we will we have the freedom to be in relationship with you. We thank you that you have committed to be with us, to dwell in us, and to be at work in us, making us into the kind of people you want us to be, the kind of people we hope to be. We pray you'd give us insight as you throw up those courtyards and towers. Help us to see it's you who are at work in us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You're not guilty. Paul doesn't say you get parole. He doesn't say you get time off for good behavior. He doesn't say you get work release. He says you're sprung. You skate. So skate out into the world. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you this day and forevermore. Amen.